Thanks for listening to the Pro Video Podcast. Weekly insights into everything video. Proudly presented by worldpodcast.com. Here's the host, Blair Walker. Hi everybody and welcome to the Pro Video Podcast. Every week we bring you insights into film, television, online video, VR and so much more. This week I'm really excited. I've got a special guest, Mike Cardillo from 16 Corners. When we're going to be talking about writing, directing, design, production, post, animation, compositing, film, broadcast. Uh, it's going to be jam-packed. Mike, thanks so much for being on the show, mate. Hey, thank you for having me, Blair. Really great to be here. So you've got your own production company, 16 Corners. Yeah, that's right. Just sharing with everybody um, what type of work you're doing. Yeah, sure. So 16 Corners, um, we've been going for nearly seven years now, seven years, I think, in August. Um, And I started it with my wife. So she's a producer and she's got a big uh, broadcast background. She was at uh, the ABC, which is one of the the main government-funded channels here, broadcasters, um, for about seven or eight years. Um, We met there did a kids show together for a couple of seasons and then got married. And then, um, yeah, we were kind of both freelancers. I've been a freelancer pretty much my entire life. And um, uh, this was after we'd worked at the ABC together. And we got she got asked on LinkedIn to produce a, a TV commercial for Macquarie Bank one day. <laughs> and she was just a freelance producer. And she's like, oh, okay, yeah, I can do that. And they said, oh, do you know a writer-director? who could come on board and help you. And she said, oh, yeah, I'm married to one. So we started going in and meeting with the kind of head people at Macquarie Bank to make this TV commercial. And we didn't have any production company behind us or any kind of, um, you know, business cards or anything. So we kind of felt a bit dodgy going in there as a husband and wife using Gmail email addresses. So we very quickly bought a URL, uh, designed a logo, came up with a business name, registered it, and then went in there, met with them, did the video, and kind of seven years later, we're still here. So... So we do a lot of uh, advertising work, TV commercials, um, obviously a lot of online stuff, a lot of high-end corporate. And then I still keep my feet wet in the broadcast TV space, um, mainly for our public broadcasters, SBS and ABC here in Australia. Um, and so we do a lot of like motion design um, and title design and stuff for broadcast TV shows like documentaries and light entertainment. Um, and then I also kind of take some time off two or three times a year and do a broadcast TV show, usually for someone like SBS. It's a real variety of different projects that you're keeping your hands in. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's what excites me. Um, I, I love the challenge of different projects. And, you know, I, I, I think I do think sometimes, oh, if I just stuck to TV commercials, I would have gotten a bit further in that realm. If I just stuck to, like, broadcast TV, I would have got a bit further there. But um, I, I don't think I would trade it for being able to do both. Like I love being able to just come in and do a 30 second TVC and do something really high quality, but a relatively brief stint. And then, you know, I love like spending three months working on a, you know, a TV one hour broadcast doco or something like that as well. So yeah, it's quite fun. Awesome. Uh, 16 Corners. Where did that name come from? (laughs) Um, We could ask that all the time. It's actually from a funk song from 1971 called The Funky 16 Corners. It's just, uh, it's actually like a dance they teach you in the song. Um, So it's sort of funny. It was the first thing that came to me when we were trying to come up with a business name. Um, And I'd always thought, oh, if I ever have a business, I want to call it 16 Corners. But um, essentially the kind of, I guess, logical reason is, um, we're surrounded by screens these days and every screen that's in front of us has video content on it. And so 16 Corners is like the multi-platform, multi-channel environment that we're living in today. Nice. I like that breakdown of where it comes from and then what it can mean. Yes. I also really like your um, branding where you have four squares overlapping, creating the 16 Corners as well. 
Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that was something that um, one of the designers we worked with came up with. And yeah, there was just something about it. It's almost like a bit optical illusion-y or something. And mm. I kind of like the way that, the, uh, you know, and this was entirely him. It had nothing to do with me, but the, the four squares almost like direct your vision right into the center point of where they're all kind of intersecting. And I kind of feel like that is ultimately what we're trying to do. You know, we're trying to create video content that sort of grabs people's attention and directs their focus towards, you know, whatever it is you're trying to make. Do love me a good, nice logo design and some (laughs) solid branding. Your wife, Fiona, and you, and you've got a business development partner as well, Chris. So it's the three of you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we're we're still pretty small and um, we still very much are bringing on production people according to, you know, the projects we've got on. But yeah, it's good. We've we've kept kind of pretty consistently busy, um, and yeah, we. I kind of like the smaller production company model because I feel like it just keeps us a little bit more nimble and be able to kind yeah. of suit different projects. So we don't have, for example, any you know uh, designers or, or motion designers in house, but we've got very strong relationships with about five or six core people that we return to regularly, and it just means that we can bring the right person on for each project. You know, we've got like a motion designer who's more illustrative in style. We've got guys who are more like 3D, some who are more are better at sort of storytelling and explainer videos, some who are better at just purely aesthetic eye-popping stuff. So it just means we can kind of mix and match the right people for each project, which, yeah, I think our clients kind of appreciate. And I think that the industry is also moving towards that model where people like that freedom and flexibility for themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. And it it just keeps us, I think, flexible in how we charge clients as well. Because, you know, we're not trying to cover the overheads of 10 staff members who may or may not be working on that given project. We can literally just budget in the head hours that are working on it. Um, You know, it means that with some of our regular clients, we've got some banking clients that we work for a lot. And, you know, we can do low cost projects for them every so often. You know, they'll just throw something small our way and we're like, okay, yeah, we can do that for you just to keep that relationship happening. We're not needing to like charge megabucks every single thing that comes yeah. through our, our facility. Do you have physical um, space as well or are you really light on that as well? Yeah, we do have physical space. So we're actually in a co-working space, um, but we've got two edit suites set up there and kind of enough room to expand as well. So when we get, you know, production crew in, we can bring people in and have, you know, people on other desks and meeting and stuff like that as well. Um, yeah, it's a good good kind of setup. And I'm sure, as you know, a lot of um, post-production anyway happens in people's homes, you know, you bring on a motion designer or, or a graphic designer or an editor and often they'll have their own suite and their own setup and their own short keyboard shortcuts. And um, it means we can often take on quite a lot of overflow. So, you know, there's times when we'll have four edit projects happening simultaneously and, you know, a couple of them will be happening offsite at, you know, someone's home and we've got good relationships with good editors that we trust. So, you know, we're happy to do that wherever possible. I've seen some really cool shared spaces and it's such a great model. The other people who are sharing the space with you, are they in a similar industry or are they quite varied? Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a, uh, a filmmaking company as well that do like similar kind of stuff that are really great. They're called Mint Films. Um, and then there's also um, a sort of a design and web company. And then, then there's also an actor kind of writer who's a comedian uh, as well. So they're all creatives and they're all very much in pretty overlapping fields, um, which yeah. is great. And, and there's no you know, competition or anything between us. It's actually like we share crew and we share ideas. And, and for example, one of the guys who runs runs Mint Films is uh, a DOP and I've just done a documentary for SBS and we needed a second cameraman and I hired him in and, you know, he was with us for one of the weeks of shooting as a, as a second cameraman. So we just kind of, you know, work quite flexibly like that. 
it's something I've heard so often repeated that this creative industry of ours where we're, we're bringing commerce and creativity together, I think that uh, that passion really breaks down that competitive us against you mentality that we're all kind of in it together, really. Yeah, totally. I mean, you've obviously got to make a living out of what you're doing, but we're doing it because we love it. You know, I don't think there's many people I know in this industry who are just doing it as like a money job, you know, like go and probably rethink that if you are. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And if you're going to do work of any quality, you're going to end up having, you know, late nights or weekends and, um, you can't continue doing that if you've just got no impetus for it. That's internal. So yeah. 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 Yeah, success is really solely driven by motivation and passion, and that's 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 the fuel that keeps it ticking over in those early mornings, totally late nights. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, your background you you do a lot of writing and directing yourself. But, yeah. Um, what are you doing now, and where did you start as well? Yeah. So, um. I think I'll try and race through it. I've done quite a lot of things, but a very brief biography, uh, born and raised in Sydney, Australia. Um, from a really early age, identified that I wanted to work in film. Um, like sort of, I was always into stories and I was a really voracious reader. And then I fell in love with movies and I was probably like eight or nine when I was like, oh, I think this is what I want to do. And, um, you know, I grew up in the days when not everyone had a, you know, a camera in their mobile phone. In fact, (laughs) no one had mobile phones. So accessibility wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't really making short films when I was a kid or anything like that, but I graduated, um, high school, went to university and did a media production degree at UTS here in Sydney. Um, and that was a really great degree. It's very hands-on and I got to do a number of short films and some of which got into festivals and stuff like that. Um, but probably the, the key thing to like, starting my professional career was I was working in a call center, um, to pay for my, you know, uni degree. And then halfway through my degree, the call center fell over and I was made redundant as was everyone. And, um, I was still living at home and I thought, Oh, you know what? I've saved up enough money that I reckon I could probably work and volunteer for some stuff for about six months, you know, without blowing through all my savings. And so I put up my hands uh, for a couple of interning roles at some post facilities, mainly starting as an edit assist. And one of them, I just, I worked at for six weeks on my off days at uni and I just got on like a house on fire with the head editor there. He's a great guy called Martin Taylor and he's now the head of production at Start VR, who's one of the, probably the biggest VR company in Australia. Um, and we just got on so well that when I finished up my six weeks, he would start sending referrals my way for jobs that, for freelance gigs that he couldn't do. And so... I just ended up for literally the next 10 years trailing in his wake. It, like he'd go and work for a, a, a commercials production company as an editor and then he'd move on and they'd say, oh, do you know anyone who can replace you? And he'd say, oh, yeah, give Mike a call. So literally for 10 years I was just kind of like almost following him from job to job. Um, but And then I was also doing as a freelancer lots of other things on the side, both uh, editing and, and directing and shooting and then taught myself After Effects um, and so on, doing a bit of compositing and, and uh, titles design. And, um, then the lucky thing is, so then for the last 18 months of my university degree, um, I ended up with a pretty solid base of freelance clients so that once I graduated, I actually kind of had enough work to just keep freelancing. Um, also when I graduated and this was back at the end of 2003, um, I saw an ad, uh, for the ABC, they 
wanted someone to help out in what was then called the broadband department. <laughs> so this is in the days <laughs> when people would divvy it up between dial-up and broadband. <laughs> and, um, and the great thing about the ABC is that, you know, obviously not being a commercial network, being government-funded, um, they put a lot of money in innovative stuff. And at the time, you know, this was pre-YouTube. So they had were putting money into video content online, and it was pretty unheard of. Um, and not only repurposing broadcast shows, but also generating purpose-built stuff for online. And so I put up my hand and, and got a job. I think it was like two days a week there at the ABC. And um, and it was great. Like I, I would do anything and everything. I'd do, uh, you know, editing. I'd do directing. I'd do motion graphics. I'd shoot stuff. Um, and then off the back of that, I met my wife there and uh, she hired me for a, a kid's TV show um, that was went for two seasons. And so I directed that and she produced that. And then when we wrapped up, we started going out and then got married. Um, and then in the meantime, I'd just been kind of doing a lot of, um, uh, broadcast TV commercials as well, mainly as an editor, then moving into directing and then also started working in broadcast TV on proper broadcast TV shows, sort of light entertainment and documentary content. Um, and yeah, I got in with, uh, some guys called Blink TV and they're quite prolific here. They, um, do the Eurovision Song Contest broadcast for SBS. They do Mardi Gras, they do all kinds of big stuff. And so I started out editing the Eurovision Song Contest broadcast, uh, for SBS here and then moved on to post-producer and now I write and direct and, and produce for them too. I really love hearing about the relationships that are created, meeting your wife and then going out and yeah, that's so awesome to hear. Yeah, yeah. the um, relationships, I feel, are such a big key part of it and hearing how you had a senior editor that you developed a strong relationship with and that, that helped carry you through a big portion of your career. Yeah. You th- I, I really felt that um, when we were in this era of bigger post facilities and we had this mentorship with these senior people, because the content wasn't freely available as it is now, do you think there's a little bit of a shift for somebody who might be coming into the industry now than it was? Yeah, I kind of, I sort of wonder because I feel like I came in in sort of mid-shift to the kind of digital revolution. Like, you know, I mean, I literally learned nonlinear editing on the first version of Final Cut Pro. I had one of the really early versions, you know, I think there's maybe version 2.0 of like Adobe Premiere and stuff like that. It's really different because I think... Um, I, I kind of wonder whether I would have preferred to have entered the industry like 10 years earlier and kind of gone through the more formal, um, probably hierarchy of learning how to do stuff or whether I would have preferred to come in 10 years later when everything's freely accessible in terms of software and the technology to make stuff. Yeah, I do think it's I do think it's tricky because I, I see a lot of young people coming into the industry these days and, you know, they've like bought a cheap DSLR and they've started moonlighting shooting and then they've got, you know, some edit software at home. And I think it's brilliant that all that stuff's so accessible. But I also think that sometimes you can lose, yeah, the sort of relationships or the, even some of the processes, you know, I think particularly like uh, I did a really big TV commercial last year and we had a couple of really um, senior old heads like, um, you know, first ADs and stuff like that that work on, you know, features and really big projects. And they're kind of always whinging about the young guys coming in who don't have any respect for the hierarchy of crews or the processes and stuff like that. And I think even, you know, even though some of that can be a bit, um, just, you know, old people having a bit of a gripe sometimes. Um, I think there is some truth to it. I think there are processes involved in production for a reason. You know, they're not just things that people have made up and stuck to. There there are reasons um, that you do things in a certain way. And I think sometimes if you get completely lost in that, you can still succeed, of course, but 
maybe you're missing some of the, uh, you know, the things that will fall over one day for you on a project. Yeah. You won't necessarily know about it until it's too late. Yeah, yeah. There's some really great points in there. And, I, and I've seen that myself um, with some younger people that I've been in touch with. Just seeing how they do approach it, which is um, gets the job done. But at the same time, I can see how if there are some changes or the project takes a sharp tack that it's all going to fall apart. So it's hinging on the fact that you're not going to have that. And I think that that's something that I always learned is like, make sure that you're not trapped in a corner that (laughs) like, so that whole approach can sometimes mean crossing your T's and dotting every I as you go through the process so that you're not stitched up later on. Yeah. And I think also, you know, I mean, look, the, the digital revolution in terms of, you know, digital video cameras and, and nonlinear editing is brilliant. I think it's, you know, completely changed the industry for the better. But yeah. I also think it's encouraged, you know, a, a, a laziness in some people in that you can shoot hours upon hours of takes of stuff and figure it all out in post. You're not worrying about film that you're burning through. You haven't got a limited amount of um, stock that you're trying to shoot. One of the first short films I ever edited was a 16mm film on a, on a steam deck, like a flatbed manually splicing and pasting together um, the the film. And, you know, that gives you such a respect for every edit decision because, you know, with nonlinear editing, you can slap a shot in there and go, oh, let's make it two frames longer. Oh, let's make it three frames shorter. And it's very easy and flexible to do that. And that's great. But it means you don't have to be very precise with your decision making. And it can just be this constantly iterative, evolving thing. Whereas when you're cutting on a, a film deck, um, you know, if you cut something and then you think, wait a second, I need two more frames, you start ending up with lots of little pieces of frames yeah. that are kind of being stuck together and it gets really unwieldy and you lose frames and you're like, where did I put that frame? I need that back. Um, all that kind of yeah. thing. So um, I, I would never go back to this, a Steam Deck or, or suggest anyone should should operate on that, <laughs> you know, professionally. But it's it's given me, I think, a real perspective of like, you know, every time I make an edit, I'm actually really weighing up does this shot need to go here? Is this exactly where I'm cutting? And and I feel like that's a bit of an old school approach that I don't see that many editors have anymore. Yeah, it's, it is it is an interesting one where there are pros and cons to the development of it and really being analytical at each step and not just um, stumbling upon the, the creative process. I, I definitely see what you're saying there. And, and even, you know, your discussion about shoot ratios, I've definitely seen shoot ratios go so much higher. Yeah. And while there is freedom of lots of takes to work from, it's actually, um, if the timeline is much shorter, you actually have to just make a call of going with gut instinct of something that feels right rather than actually being exposed to all uh, the possibilities. Absolutely. I think, I mean, look, everyone has a different creative process. And I think there are some artists that need that freedom. You know, like you look at someone like a a Terrence Malick or whatever, when you're talking about feature films, I mean, there's no way his films, you could make any other way than his process where he just shoots reams of stuff. He spends a long time in editing. It's sort of these emerging then threads come out of it. And that's absolutely fine. But it's sort of, I think, having a deliberate process is really important. So knowing that oh, okay, I am going to shoot a lot and I'm going to find it in post because there's a particular aesthetic or there's a particular tone of storytelling that I'm trying to engage in that can only be done this way. I think that's important. Or going, you know what, no, I need to storyboard the crap out of this. I'm going to shoot incredibly specific coverage and it can't be cut any other way. I think just being deliberate and conscious about your your creative process is important. And I think that I see a lot of unconscious creative process where 
it's like, let's just suck it and see. Let's just get on set and shoot every conceivable possibility and then we'll kind of figure it out later. And it can definitely work and it's yeah. definitely hedging your bets, but I don't know that it's right for every project. No. Don't know if it develops your own creative aesthetic and your eye as fast as if you're really analysing every step that you're taking and asking yourself why you're choosing to do that too. Yeah, I agree, yeah. It's interesting you're talking about the Steinbeck and making those edit decisions. And for the first time since it's come out, I actually used the Morph Cut in Premiere successfully for something. (laughs) (laughs) It is a temperamental beast, but when it works, it's brilliant. It saves you. Yeah, I was um, basically had some content where I had to cut out two seconds. I really didn't think it was going to work because I've had so many times where I thought, oh, I'll try the morph cut and this might save it. It didn't. And this time it actually worked. And I was like, wow, <laughs> it's quite magic when it does work. I know. I feel like we, we have a hit rate of about 30%, but the 30% yeah. that works you like, I'm so thankful for it. And it's sort of interesting because I think like technology like that, it, you know, it could not have existed five years ago and it's going to completely revolutionize post workflows. Like even I'm sure you would have seen you know, whenever it was a year or two ago when uh, Adobe demoed uh, the audition thing where you could change what people were saying. Yeah. You know, I've seen technologies where, you know, facial mapping can morph what people's facial expressions are doing and you can actually, you know, take live footage of someone and completely remap their facial expressions in live real time. All that kind of stuff. I think there's going to be some really amazing creative possibilities that just wouldn't have been possible before. And, and it's going to be accessible. I think, you know, they're going to be accessible to desktop users, not just you know, the high-end post facilities, which is, I think, really interesting. Yeah, definitely agree. It's even um, the processes of animation and motion and things like that, that we're used to opening up applications and making keyframes and decisions like this, where artificial intelligence and the development of UI, we're just removing that layer so you're just interacting with content in a more physical, intuitive way. I think that that's where I've seen UI development and um, this understanding of what things do instinctively because we've grown up in the last 10 years. We've learned it, but I see my son interactively know how to use screens just yeah. from experience as a five-year-old because he's seen screens since he was two. Yeah, absolutely. And so you've got that whole generation that will come up with yeah it's freaky like i've got you know a a three and a half year old and i like we exposed him very rarely to any screens in probably the first year of his life and then i remember when he was one and he started learning to walk he pulled himself up and could actually reach our dvd case pulled the dvd off the shelf and had a shiny cover and he started trying to swipe the cover and to the next picture (laughs) Like, he, you know, and I think just from watching us obviously use phones and swipe through photos and stuff, he just thought, yeah. oh, this is a screen I'm going to swipe. <laughs> and we're just looking very confused when the, when the image wasn't changing. Um, so I think, you know, like you said, it's intuitive, you know. I think particularly what Apple has done has sort of captured a way of interacting with software that is, um, yeah, very intuitive and quite easy to use and that, you know, one-year-old kids can even kind of get the gist of it. Yeah, yeah. It'll be very interesting to see where we're at in 10 years' time. Mm. With all of the um, democratization of the equipment, the ease of gaining knowledge on how to use things, so if you want to teach yourself anything, knowledge is freely out there for you to do that. With that comes people creating a lot of content. I want to talk about a blog post that you wrote that sort of addressed this, which I thought was classic. So 
the blog title was enough with your shitty videos already <laughs> yeah i feel quite strongly about video content um and i think you know look i think in general the the democratization as you said of content and the accessibility of technology is amazing um i think there is something absolutely brilliant about everyone now carrying a video camera at all times in their pockets or in their handbags and you know a lot of people talk about the industry's changed because now everyone carries a camera i don't think the industry's changed because cameras are more accessible i think the industry's changed because um publishing is more accessible so it's not just the fact that you can shoot a video with your um you know mobile phone but it's that you can then instantly publish it to potentially millions of people a, a, an infinitely scalable audience online that's what's changed you no longer have the gatekeepers of the you know five traditional tv networks or the movie studios dominating what people can and can't see um anyone can publish anything and i think there's great stuff about that because you've got voices and particularly diverse voices out there that you would never have but um holy crap there's a lot of bad content in the world, you know um sure is. and and you know and i think a, a lot of it is you know uh you know people just making random stuff out of naivety and and whatever i mean and I, there's there's no uh, i think there's nothing pernicious about it but you know we are absolutely inundated from all sides with video content and i think from my point of view people don't really understand what video is good at or or why people watch video in the first place at least in a conscious way and one of the things that we try and i guess talk to all of our clients about is you know with so much content around actually there's a quote that I'll share with you there's a guy called um and it was in my my blog post uh, a guy called Martin Weigel who is a Dutch uh, creative director at Whedon and Kennedy in uh, Amsterdam and he had this classic presentation where he said this about engaging people these days he said um the challenge of engaging people is no longer nurturing their enthusiasm it's overcoming their indifference because we're so i guess desensitized by video content that um you know i think people are kind of at best indifferent to content or at worst actually hostile to it and i still see in creative processes in like agencies and you know production companies and stuff like that this kind of almost naive sensibility of like oh we've just got to create something a little bit fun and people will automatically become enthusiastic about it. And I think no, actually it's not naively expecting people will be enthusiastic about the content you create. Think of it as a battle. Like it's a battle of wills, you know. If I'm watching a YouTube thing and one of those 5 second skippable pre-roll ads come up, my mouse is on that skip button the moment it appears and the microsecond it's clickable, I'm clicking through. Like I'm actually aggressively hostile to whatever's playing in front of me. And I think if you change your creative process to think okay I'm not nurturing enthusiasm but I'm actually trying to shatter people's indifference or their hostility it raises the bar in terms of what you think is acceptable content you know you you're going oh actually this needs to be outstanding or this needs to be incredibly compelling and I think it changes what you what you do and what you make off the back of that like we often say that our creative process is like you know an audience first process in other words what is the experience of the audience watching this piece of content and therefore how do we reverse engineer to connect that to the brief you know so yeah. don't just think brief forwards think audience backwards uh, yeah and you know there's an, there's another great quote that i love um by a guy called michael hague and he's you know a really senior screenwriting and story consultant in hollywood and i think he, he does a lot of work for will smith's production company i went to a seminar of his and and he said the reason people go to the movies isn't to think it's to feel you can make them think but only after you've first given them an emotional experience and what i loved about that is i think he 
he connects with why people watch stuff. I think if you go to a, a cinema on a Friday or Saturday night, you're not conscious of it, but you're there because you're implicitly saying, tonight uh, I want to laugh or I want to cry or I want to be scared or thrilled or wowed or whatever. But what has compelled you to go and buy that ticket is the promise of an emotional experience. And I think the same is true if you sit down and watch, you know, something on Netflix. Like we've all had the experience, you know, you put on a DVD or Netflix and you turn to your partner or your flatmate or your friend and the question you inevitably ask is, what do you feel like? You know, what emotion do you want to feel tonight? And then you say, oh, I feel like a comedy or I feel like a a horror movie. In other words, people curate the emotional experiences they want to have through the stuff that they watch. And it's easy to think about films and Netflix and stuff in those terms, but I think it's true of all content. I think even the dullest corporate video that you see in a training session or on a, a corporate intranet, when someone pulls that up, in the back of their mind, they are secretly subconsciously hoping that there's something emotional to connect to. They're hoping that they laugh or that they smile or that they're moved or whatever. And, you know, I think in this day and age, the vast majority of content does not actually fit that bill. It, you know, people are just trying to self-aggrandize or, or just publish stuff or put ideas out there. And I think don't get your idea out there, get the emotion that's associated with your idea out there. And that's what people are going to respond to. And that's why your video will go viral or why people will actually bother watching it all the way through. Oh, so much great insight there. What points do I pick up first? Okay. (laughs) So I, I totally agree with you. Something that really resonated is whatever the content is, and we've given it this label of content, which almost instantly makes it a product. And whatever piece of emotive visual stimulation that you're creating for your audience, whether it's a feature film, a music video, or a piece of corporate content, what can you do to really lift it, to make it engaging, to make somebody feel something? I think you have to work so much harder in that space but then that's where the real payoffs come from it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love that you, you mentioned the word content because it's sort of, that's one of my uh, personal bugbears because I feel like the word content, it's like the empty calories of the video production world, you know, and the amount of times I've been briefed like, oh, we need a video because we want to put something on Instagram or we want to put something on, on Facebook or whatever. And you're like, you're just making something for the sake of filling a channel as opposed yeah. to actually thinking like, why, why are we making this? Why, why video? In fact, I've actually like dissuaded clients from making videos and hiring us. Like they've briefed us on something and I've gone, this isn't a video. Like this is a, a, an email newsletter or this is a, you yeah. know, a, a, a piece of direct mail marketing or something like that. Like don't make a video about this. There's nothing video here. Um, or, you know, try to help them pivot and do something differently. And I mean, I'll, gi- I'll give you an example of something that we did a few years ago. We had uh, one of our regular clients as a financial services company, and um, they came to us and they said, okay, we want to create a video campaign internally about changing meeting behaviors. So, you know, we have a, a, a corporate culture of way too many meetings, and they're inefficient, and things don't get decided in them. And even if things get decided in the meetings, people are so chockers with meetings for the rest of the day, they can't actually action anything that they've decided. <laughs> so they're like, let's make a video about that. And I was like, okay, cool. And they said, so what we want to do is we want you to interview like us, all of our senior leadership team about their top 10 tips for having better meetings. And I immediately said to them, no one will watch that video. Like no one is going to take time out of their lunch break and hear from, you know, up on high what their tips for having better meetings is. You know, it's not going to be successful. So I, I said to them, look, what you're talking about is like cultural change. You need something that feels like a groundswell 
thing and you're wanting people ultimately to use their own initiatives. Like you just don't want to dictate rules around meetings. You want people to actually go, wait a second, this is stupid. Let's do something differently. So what I, I pitched back to them, I said, is look, what if we create a comedic short film where we take all of the normal bad meeting behaviors that happen in one of your meetings and put them in a real world situation where you would never do them just to highlight how ridiculous they are. So we had a meeting in the bread aisle of a supermarket with like a whole team trying to decide what loaf of bread to buy for the week. And they have this hilariously over the top, ridiculous convoluted meeting and then don't decide on nothing and depart. And, you know, it, it, um, it was just kind of coming at it from a slightly different angle. And so it ended up being released on their internet. And within three days of being online, it was the most watched video on their internet of all time. And it got, you know, viral and it got forwarded around the, their, their organization. And, you know, I mean, I don't think it was just, you know, it being necessarily like the most amazing video, but I think it was just coming at a problem from a different angle. And, yeah. and you know, we justified it because we said to them, look, you know, you want people to have their own initiative and doing a, a comedic video makes it relatable because people immediately watch it and go, oh, yeah, I do that. That is a bit stupid. And yeah. then they automatically think of a solution and they're, they're motivated by humor and the lightheartedness of it to, to address it. They're not, they don't feel like they're being told off or roused on for doing something. Um, and so, yeah, like I think for us, it's, it's sort of helping try and pivot our clients a lot of the times away from just what's been done before or the, you know, the talking head video and kind of going, wait a second, what is the, actually the business problem you're trying to solve here? you can actually probably solve it better with a video that has some kind of emotive component to it that's going to make people laugh or cry or whatever rather than just doing the same old kind of boring, you know, talking head video. Which is really about um, working through the problem to find the right solution. And sometimes I think that it's, um, see some projects that just, uh, let's just start making something. Yeah. And <laughs> then really knowing that what, what you're making has a purpose yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, um, you know, as a sort of, you know, writer, director, creative director in my earlier days uh, with our business, I was probably a lot more gung ho and uh, probably got more frustrated when clients just wanted to do something boring and kind of was like, no, you know, they don't want that. They want something way cooler <laughs> and kept trying to like convince people and upsell them to do something like, you know, bigger than Ben-Hur. Um, and I think what I've kind of learned as I've gotten older is it's really important, like as much as I have a very strong philosophy about what makes good video content, um, it's still important to understand what your clients actually want. And sometimes, you know, they've been delegated to make a video and they don't particularly want to make it. They're not personally invested in it. They don't want it to be the most creative thing in the world. They just want to tick a box and they yeah. want it to be relatively inexpensive and they don't want to get 15 emails about the production process every day. They just want you to kind of handle it and give them a finished product that's not going to raise any eyebrows. It's just like kind of the same old, same old. And I think I understand that a little bit more now. I can kind of intuit pretty early on when we get a brief, uh, okay, this person's not going to be open to doing something super creative. So, okay, that's their prerogative. I can talk to them about it a bit, but ultimately if they say, no, nope, no, nope, just interview the CEO for eight minutes talking down the barrel. Okay. Well, if that's what you want, we'll, we'll do that. And, you know, I think in the, in the first kind of couple of years of our business, someone said something to me that just absolutely struck a chord. And they said, what you're selling to your clients is not a video. It's the experience of making the video with you. And it kind of changed my mindset around from going, okay, let's not make every end product the kind of golden God that we're trying to worship. Let's actually make the process excellent from beginning to you know end. So, you know, our clients feel like we're, they're being listened to, they're being understood 
and we're delivering excellently every part of the process from the initial meeting to the final handoff. Um, and I think that has sort of revolutionized some of our client relationships and we get a lot of repeat work and referral work because I think people feel quite confident in how we're going to handle everything that they throw at us. Yeah. Again, it comes down to the fact that the process is also about the relationships and how we feel and the experience. So yeah, can totally understand that. It's not about the end product. It's about the journey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and you kind of have to, I think for me, I had to put some of my, you know, probably ego aside from my earlier years and go, okay, this isn't about me. Like I'm not making this video because I want to make a video about, you know, some internal banking <laughs> you know, issue. Like I'm making it because I'm getting paid to, and you have to just kind of submit yourself to, to what they want to do and, and deliver an excellent product no matter what. And even if they, they're making decisions you don't agree with, you just go, okay, I can counsel them and I can push for stuff and I can try and give them rationales. But at the end of the day, like, hey, you know, we're happy for the work. We'll do whatever you want. Let's talk about some of that work because um, (laughs) there's a lot that you've got on your website. Some of the ones that really stood out to me was um, Market City Cinema Ad. Love that. Okay, thanks. Yeah, that was a fun kind of ad. It was, um, we'd actually, it was the way it came about. So Market City is a a shopping center in Haymarket in in Sydney. And um, it was kind of funny. We were doing a job for Commonwealth Bank that required us to go and shoot some really heavily stylized, like hyperlapse style videos yep. of, at a few of their branches. So they're kind of like stop motion videos, but um, with the camera moving quite dynamically through the space. Anyway, we'd gotten permission to shoot at Market City and my DOP and I were there shooting this hyperlapse video one day. And um, this sort of head of Market City came over to us and was like, oh, what are you, what are you guys doing? And, and I said, oh, we're doing this thing for ComBank. And he was quite a photography buff. And so he knew about hyperlapse. And then he was like, oh, could you do a video for us? And I said, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so he briefed us and originally he wanted like a hyperlapse thing kind of traveling through the entire shopping center. And he's like, but, but we want to see all the different things you can do, like the food and the, the fashion and the shopping and, you know, so on and so on. Um, and, and I said to him, oh, I don't know if hyperlapse is the way to go, but let's just do something crazy. Like you want to give people a sense that there's so much you can do here. So let's make a 15 second ad where we cut, you know, every like less than a second. I think, I think there's sort of like 23 shots in 15 seconds. Each shot is kind of a crash zoom highlighting a different activity you can do there and kind of just creating this like almost Edgar Wright style montage of everything you can do. And then, and then sort of, um, you know, giving everyone a a bit of a jolt of, of energy. Um, yeah. So they kind of, they love that idea. And we just kind of had a really crazy day of running around the supermarket, the shopping center, shooting every kind of conceivable thing we can do really quickly. And, um, yeah, it was a really fun job to, to pull off. Yeah, it, it and I feel that energy in it, um, the energy of the editing, obviously, but you can still clock every shot that's happening because there's real strong compositions happening in those, even with the crash zooms. Yeah, well, one of the things that we decided really early that we were going to basically comp- compose center frame everything, and the, the reason... Sorry, my phone's just ringing. I'm going to stop that. Sorry about that. Um, All good. Uh, <laughs> it is on flight. Weird that they came through. Um, yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, so the the thing, the decision we made really early on was that we were going to do um, center frame composition for all of the shots because that's another thing that I think I learned from more classical training when I was younger is, you know, shot composition and how the shots cut together is really important in terms of where the viewer's eye is being guided to. And Especially think, at their you know, pace. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think like one of the worst things you see in like a lot of modern action movies in, in Hollywood is just kind of incoherent editing where they've cut very quickly and it's all handheld because they're trying to give that sense of, of visceral excitement and action to it. But the shots aren't composed in a way where you can actually take in yeah. what's happening from shot to shot. Like you're looking at the bottom left of shot and then the next shot is like you need to look, uh, you know, top right. So with us, we knew that if you're going to be on a shot for less than a second each, if everything's center frame, your eyes can just kind of lock into the center of frame and you can still interpret everything that's going past you, even though some of it's almost subliminal. Yeah. It's the same um, approach with uh, stereoscopic cinematography. You want the eyes to be able to rest from cut to cut so that yes. it's not putting too much strain. I think... Um, with VR and AR, there's going to be very similar things. When you have an entire space to look at, you're kind of wanting to direct the viewer's eyes even more. How do you do that when you're changing experience over time? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we are, as audiences in the 21st century, incredibly literate to the grammar and language of cinema. And I think that people can kind of take that for granted a bit. You know, we can interpret cut so much quicker than audiences of any era before us. I mean, you know, back in the 30s and 40s in Hollywood, you were not allowed by the studios to cut from a wide shot to a close-up without cutting to a mid-shot in between because yeah. it was it was deemed to be too uh, sort of almost like a, a, a nervous system shock to go from really wide to suddenly really <laughs> tight on something. Uh, and these days it's, um, you know, we can throw, you know, 15 shots at someone in, you know, six seconds and they won't bat an eyelid. Yeah, it's interesting Something that I've always thought about as well is literacy of different forms. So with the mobile technology, I felt that the literacy of photography and video would become so much stronger, which loops back to the fact that there's a lot of content being made. But being able to lift the level of what you're doing and having the audience understand it. As an example, color grading so much easier to have a conversation with anybody about grading now than it was 10 years ago because everyone's used to grading something in Instagram. And so throwing a term like crushing the blacks isn't just an in-house jargon anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I think it's so interesting. And I think that, you know, like the DVD era where you had audio commentaries and behind Mm. the scenes featurettes, like people have peeked behind the curtain of the process and the technology way more than they ever had in the past. And, you know, I mean, I see stuff regularly, you know, on, on YouTube and Vimeo by like vloggers who just are making stuff in their bedroom with a, you know, a webcam or slightly better than a webcam. That's just extraordinary. And you think, Oh my God, the, the level of cinematic technique and technological understanding that they have to generate that stuff is just kind of mind boggling. And it's, you know, it's never been possible before until the last sort of five years. Yeah. Some of the um, work that you've done that I thought really utilized compositing and visual effects is from the IINet series. Some real fun spots. Do you sort of want to share with everybody what they are and then some of the process behind them? The roller coaster, I thought, came out really well. A lot of oh, um, VFX in that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, IONET, um, quite an unusual company there. So they're an internet service provider here in Australia. And um, they basically conceive most of their marketing campaigns in-house. Um, so they do they do work with a media agency that they do get um, created from as well. But they're quite different because we've worked with them not through an ad agency, but actually direct as a production company. And I mean, you know, there's probably a, a conversation we can have about that sort of change to the production yeah. landscape. But um, yeah, I mean, it's been really great because they've come at us 
Um, we've done three campaigns for them now. And the first two were, were smaller, like they were kind of single day shoots and they were using, using some sports stars, like some cricketers and some AFL players and stuff like that. But they were kind of fun, cute little ideas um, that had a bit of compositing involved. But then, yeah, the roller coaster ad that you mentioned, they came to us sort of about halfway through last year. And um, it was kind of funny because they came to us and we'd only done a couple of the smaller shoots with them. And they were like, oh, we, we have a couple of other big production companies that we normally throw this kind of work at. But, um, you know, someone quite high ups really liked your previous stuff. Can you just pitch on this? Um, you know, you probably won't get it, but we just want to get your name in the in the conversation. right? So I was like, okay, fine. And it was crazy because they came to us and they wanted to, from the day that they pitched it to, you know, gave us the brief, it was, the shooting date was five weeks away. So we basically had, I think like 36 hours to come up with a treatment and a budget for it. And, you know, it was on a scale of something we'd never done before. So it was like, the concept was a roller coaster in the clouds, (laughs) um, a heavily VFX spot, but also with a lot of practical elements as well. And, um, so, you know, in 36 hours, we had to come up with a plan and go, okay, crap, how are we going to do these shots? You know, is it going to be green screen? Are we going to shoot on a real roller coaster? Are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? Um, and so we just kind of came up with this plan and this treatment and this budget, sent it off. And I thought, okay, well, you know, we're probably not going to get it, but whatever. And then, um, you know, a little while later, they came back to us and they said, oh, you've, you've got it. And then I was like, that's amazing, but also crap. Now, now we have to actually test to see if what we budgeted is actually feasible. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so that was fun. So, I mean, b- basically the, the premise is, there's a whole bunch of kind of characters from the world of entertainment, like reality TV and, and movies and sport, and they're riding a roller coaster in the clouds. And then they kind of, you know, go through along with the, the mascot for Ionet, who's this, this guy called Finn. And then this portal opens up in the sky and they go flying into it and everything goes dark for a second. And then it cuts to someone, you know, on their laptop with, uh, you know, a modem at home and there's a bulge in the modem in the Ethernet cable racing into their modem <laughs> and then slams into it. And so it's basically, you know, this roller coaster was the kind of, you know, flood of content that you can get in through your, you know, your home internet now with Ionet. Um, but yeah, so the challenge was basically creating a, a roller coaster in the sky that, that looked kind of um, fantasy, you know, because yeah. it's obviously in the clouds, but also had real world kind of physics to it. So we kind of had a lot of discussions and, and what we ended up landing on was we built a physical roller coaster car um, and then mounted it on a big sort of gimbal that was suspended from the ceiling in Fox Studios here in Sydney. And it could kind of pitch and roll and shake. And, um, and then we had blasted our talent with big industrial fans. And then we basically realize that in some of the shots we're kind of front onto the roller coaster as it kind of comes out of a big dip or a big bend and we realize that obviously you know the the timing of how those cars sort of pivot out of that turn were different so that the front car obviously straightens up first then the second car then yep. the third car and so we were like oh we probably can't replicate that movement um in studio with three separate cars so we ended up just building one car and then would shoot, you know, a plate of the front car moving and then we just march the camera back the exact length between cars, reload the cast with the second car's worth of cast, then pivot that and then do the same with the third and then we just kind of composite them together and, and time them in in compositing. So, yeah. I love hearing these stories of uh, how you work around a problem and find a solution. You know, there could have been quite a few different ways of approaching it but you know just yeah. thinking it through and then like oh let's just move the camera back a little bit and yeah, yeah. yeah it's cool yeah well and, and even the the original thing like i mean immediately when they briefed me i was like okay this is a vfx like this is shooting in a studio but i think some of the other people must have pitched shooting on a real roller coaster because i think the day before we got awarded the job i got this sort of call from iron going 
can you give us a written rationale as to why you want to do this completely as a VFX and not on a real roller coaster? And I was like, oh, okay, has someone else pitched doing it for real? And, and then I, I thought about it and I was like, well, A, there's dialogue. You know, you don't want to re- be recording dialogue on a real roller coaster. B, um, roller coasters can only go in one direction. So if you set up a shot in a very specific part, you do one take, and then the cast has to go the entire length of the roller coaster to get back to reset that initial shot yeah. just to do another take. And I was like, you can't put a cast through 60 runs of a roller coaster <laughs> in a day. They'll vomit. And, and, and then obviously, you know, if you're shooting outside, you've got this, you know, and you're going to be very high up, so you can't block out the sun and relight it when it's on a real roller coaster. So you're going to have the angle of the sun changing throughout the day and the shadows and lighting will be inconsistent and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it, but it was kind of challenging because I thought, wait a second, can you do this on a real roller coaster? And, and, you know, luckily my DOP, Kevin Scott, had done a documentary for the BBC in the late 90s where he was literally like a doco on like the 10 biggest roller coasters in the world. And so he had actually practically shot and mounted cameras on the 10 biggest roller coasters in the entire world. And he was like, no, there's no way we can do this for real because I know how roller coasters work. I know the limitations of where you can put your camera. You can't get the coverage that you want doing it for real. So uh, luckily I kind of had that insider knowledge and was like, no, okay, cool. We're definitely doing this VFX. And now it's time for the Pro Video Packs. Okay, now it's time for the pro video picks. So yeah, so for pro video pick, um, and I don't know if this is exactly the kind of thing um, to talk about, but for me, my creative process has been, I think, enhanced from learning a new skill. And I mean, I think when when you work a really intensive creative job, you know, like obviously a lot of people um, who'll be listening to this do, you know, the prospect of learning something new that's not directly related to your daily income can be kind of daunting. You're like, if I get any time off, I'm not going to like, I'm going to just like relax or sleep or spend time with my family. But, um, yeah, about 18 months ago, well, for, for a very long time, probably like 10 or 12 years, I'd always said to myself, Oh, one day I'd really love to learn playing the drums. And it was one of those things that I just kind of had always said, but I don't think I'd ever made any plans to, to follow through on it. And then I was on Facebook late one night about 18 months ago and a friend of mine posted a secondhand electronic drum kit that he was selling and it was a really good one. And I was like, I'm going to buy it. And so within about 30 seconds of him posting it, I just sort of impulse bought it off him. And then, um, yeah, just kind of learned to, to well, I just taught myself the drums basically. There's heaps of awesome videos on, uh, on YouTube and stuff like that. And, and it's fun. It's now set up like next to my desk and particularly like late at night or on weekends, if there's like, you know, hardly anyone in the office and I'm getting a bit of a creative block and I'm just needing to vent some frustration, you know, I'll just put some headphones on and just have a bit of a bash for half an hour. And it's really fun and it's kind of energizing. And, and I think it, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure probably someone who understands neuroscience more than me would, would understand how, you know, you can rewire your brain and kind of create new neural pathways through learning new skills. But I, I almost kind of feel like that's, that happens. Like often I'll get stuck on a pitch or I'll get stuck on a, a script that I'm writing and I go stuff it and I'll just play the drums for half an hour and then I'll come back and I'll be like, oh, okay, now I know what we have to do. Um, so yeah, that's been really good. I, you know, I mean, it doesn't have to be drums. It can be, it be anything, but I think just broadening your horizons and even, you know, I'm in my mid thirties, so it's probably been a while since I've learned a new skill from scratch. And I feel like a bit of a dunce at times, but it's, it's been really fun. Awesome. That's a great one. Music is definitely something that is a common thread throughout creatives across all different industries. And yeah, absolutely. But like you said, maybe it's uh, learning how to make uh, create a garden or something, just something yeah. really different. I think it can, I think it can be anything. But I think if it you know if it's sort of not your direct skill, like I think you know it's not like I'm going. 
okay, I, I want some time off to do something different. I'm going to learn something video related. I just kind of, you know, for me, it's doing something that's quite divorced from your yeah. day-to-day income. Um, yeah. That's what's been key for me. Yeah, definitely. Okay, following. Who are you following? Yeah, heaps of different stuff. I'm a big, big fan of European football and get up at all hours of the night and morning, morning to, to watch games and stuff like that and, and, and you know, filmmakers and stuff. But but probably the thing that I keep touch base like every week, a, a podcast, because I'm in the car a lot, driving to shoots or to meet clients and stuff. And, and it's just a great opportunity to listen to something audio related. And, um, you know, there's heaps of ones I think, you know, most people are familiar with these days who are into podcasts like This American Life and S-Town Serial and stuff. But um, one that I don't think gets a lot of attention that I love is called Heavyweight. Um, so it's produced by a, a podcasting company called Gimlet Media. And they're pretty interesting because they're like a podcasting studio in the same way that like a TV studio or movie studio. They've basically got a stable of of talent and they're constantly developing multiple um, podcasts at the same time in-house. And, and most of them are just excellent quality. But that one's really interesting to me because it's really great premise. It's a guy called Jonathan Goldstein, um, who's a, a Canadian guy who basically finds people who've gone through something in their past that has kind of irrevocably altered the course of their life and maybe like scarred them, or maybe they've haven't gotten over it or it stunted their growth in some area. And he basically invites them to revisit that moment or that person and actually do something about it to kind of get over it. And it, it kind of sounds quite intense and full on, but he's got this incredible, um, wry, self-deprecating sense of humor that undercuts a lot of the the intensity of it in a really beautiful way. And he's got a very um, novelistic sort of essayist way of writing. So he narrates it, but there's also obviously you hear from the people involved. And yeah, it's beautiful. Some of the stories are so touching. You know, there's a guy who um, got hit by a car like, you know, a number of years ago and basically got basically disabled, like had to relearn how to walk he got hit as a pedestrian and he wants to go and meet the guy who hit him, not to like vent anything at him, but actually to say, I forgive you to him face to face. And like, just kind of stuff like that. It's quite remarkable. He digs up some really incredible stories. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think, um, if you're listening to the show, you're probably into podcasts as I am. (laughs) (laughs) A good one to check out. I'd be keen to have a listen to that. That's awesome. Thanks for that. Where are you finding influence and inspiration? Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of obvious things like, you know, try and keep tabs on like, you know, Vimeo stuff picks every week and all that kind of stuff. But but for me, it, the real world everyday honest answer is actually being a dad. So, you know, I got a three, three and a half year old boy and yeah, it's, I mean, it's amazing. I think kids just are coming at so many things for the first time and they're learning new things and they've just got this curiosity and excitement about stuff in the world. And it's just kind of like reawakened the child in me really. And Um, you know, one of the things that happened probably from the time he was one or one and a half till now is almost every night I put him to bed, he wants me to tell him a story. And so I lie in bed and I'm just like making up a story on the fly, uh, you know, and you know, he, he'll go like, I want it to be about, you know, poor patrol or I want transformers and Godzilla to fight a volcano. (laughs) And so I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm like ad-libbing these stories every night. And it's, it's fun because it's almost like I've honed my verbal storytelling skills through just talking to him. Cause you know, you can tend see when he's like losing interest or, yeah. you know, obviously I want to make him laugh or I want to make him just really focus on my words. And, um, it's a brilliantly tough audience cause he's not going <laughs> to mince, mince words if it's boring. <laughs> so. Yeah. Brutally honest young children. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a good thing. Wicked man. Um, inspirational video. What would be your pick? 
Yeah, um, I mean, look, there's all kinds of short form stuff that that I love, but um, like my first love is is cinema, you know, like proper feature films, and um, that's why I got into this industry uh, in the first place. And so, you know, for me, my favorite film of all time is a spaghetti western called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Um, you know, I'm sure a, pro- a lot of people have heard of it, or you'd know the the theme song. It's got the most, you know, iconic theme song in all of Western cinema. Um, uh, but yeah, it's what I love about it is that. The spaghetti western is a pretty disreputable genre the way it started um, in that basically all of the American westerns that were made in the 30s and 40s, and that was probably the predominant genre in Hollywood, got released quite late into Europe. And so it wasn't until the late 50s and early 60s that European audiences were going, oh, these westerns are amazing. And by that time, Hollywood had kind of lost interest in westerns and stopped making them. And so these sort of enterprising Italian uh, studios were like, what if we make some Western films but shoot them in the deserts of southern Spain and just bring in some, like, C-list American actors to be... (laughs) And so the whole genre itself was like a cash grab and they were made very cheaply and most of them are really nasty and kind of horrendous rip-offs. But there was this one director, Sergio Leone, who made three spaghetti Westerns that led... Well, you know, three that... um, Two before The Good, The Bad, The Ugly and then The Good, The Bad, The Ugly was the third with Clint Eastwood as the lead and they were the first feature films Clint Eastwood did so they basically made him a a world household name. And, um, you know, he made... Uh, for uh, a fistful of dollars for a few dollars more and then The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. And he just did something so extraordinary, extraordinarily creative with that genre because, you know, all they wanted was something cheap and nasty that was riffing on a very American genre. And he took that and he actually made almost satires. Like they're these very slyly funny inversion and subversion of Western cinema tropes um, that he put in his films. And they're kind of, like to me the good the bad and the ugly is yeah the best film ever made because he is commenting on not just western cinema but cinema in general the way he uses shots you know the the way Clint Eastwood's character is introduced is there's a couple of bad banditos that are kind of holding someone hostage and then they're talking and Clint Eastwood's gun steps into frame or his hat I think steps into frame from a direction in the middle of the desert where every single person in that scene could have seen him coming from miles away. But because the camera wasn't pointed at him, he gets this incredibly dramatic entrance and surprises the banditos. And it's kind of this like comedic meta commentary on films, you know, that this guy who is plainly visible to the characters in real life could suddenly make this dramatic entrance from the framing of the, his shot selection. Um, so just stuff like that to me is, is amazing. And, and like the e- end of the film... I think is like one of the most cinematic things that you'll ever see because it's a standoff duel between three characters who effectively for five minutes of screen time are just standing, staring at each other, not even doing anything. And yet it is incredibly exciting and compelling and absorbing because of the way he shoots it and cuts it and the musical score. And so I often say to people, I think it's the most cinematic movie of all time because it wouldn't work in any other medium. Like if you made a novelization of that end jewel scene, it would be incredibly boring. If you made a stage play or a painting, it would be boring. It's, it's pure cinema to me. And and that's why I love it. And I love the fact that he did it in such a disreputable genre because it just reminds me that you can get a really crappy cynical brief and yet still make something incredible out of it. Yeah. Yeah, which literally loops back to what we were talking about earlier. I, I, I like yeah. that circle. Nicely done. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, who would you who would you like to recommend to come on the show? Who should I get on? Oh, there's quite a few great people, but the person I think that 
um, really stands out is a guy called Stu Willis, who's a friend of mine. Um, he's based in Melbourne, Australia, because he's he's quite multidisciplinary. So he's like an editor by day, and he's a very um, story-minded editor, but he's also very technically minded. He gets really deep into the kind of workflow processes of, you know, the Adobe suite and all that kind of stuff. Um, he's worked in the VFX department of a whole lot of feature films, um, like the last Pirates of the Caribbean movie yeah. and Superman Returns and stuff. Um, but also he's a great filmmaker. He's he's made a, 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 a sorry a web series called West Restoration, which has won awards all over the world for being a great sci-fi web series. And he also runs his own podcast called Draft Zero, um, which is a screenwriting podcast he does with a guy called Chaz Fisher, where they just do really deep dives into the technicalities and processes of screenwriting. And it's always a great listen. So I think you would have no end of stuff to talk to him about. Awesome. That's a great pick. Um, yeah, I do know Stu actually online. Um, we haven't yes. really chatted, but I've definitely seen his comments and his threads on the various groups that we're all sort of intertwined in. Yes, yes. He's, yeah, he's very vocal and, and he's really connected to the to the film community as well and uh, and just a good guy. So I think he'd be a great, a great person to talk to. That's awesome, man. So where can everyone find you online? Yeah, you can find our website. It's probably the, the first place to, to go, um, 16corners.com. So that's spelt out S-I-X-T-E-E-N, corners, so C-O-R-N-E-R-S.com. Um, you can also find us on Vimeo. Uh, if you just search Vimeo 16 Corners, we're on obviously Facebook and Instagram as well. We do have a Twitter account. I, I, I don't really understand Twitter personally, so <laughs> there's not a lot that goes on it, but, but certainly Instagram and Facebook, uh, if you want to follow most of our, our posts and content and, and some of the, the blog posts and articles that I write, that get published as well. Awesome. Awesome. We'll have the links to those on the show notes. Thanks again, Matt Lloyd, for putting all those together. Yeah, man, you do such a great job. So if you're listening to this on a podcast app or online, check out the show notes and click on all the links to what we've been talking about today. So thank you so much, Mike, for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. It's great talking to you, Blair. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's been really, really enjoyable. And I love that the conversation has just really gone all over the place. That That's my best kind of podcast, I reckon. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Thanks. Um, yeah, well, it was great to great to be on and it was really nice to, to chat to you. Wicked. You can find us at Pro Video Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We've also got the Slack group. You can find that at provideopodcast.com forward slash Slack and join in there. Lots of places that you can jump in and uh, have a chat and, yeah, possibly Mike jump into the Slack group and uh, start sharing some stuff in there as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Wicked, wicked. Everyone, have a great week and thanks so much for listening. Have a great one. Bye. Join the conversation on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Pro Video Podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes.